Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Your return cannot make a difference really on the outcome of your life. You can have some amazing stories, but you know, we can also have some amazing stories of going to Vegas and hitting it big on a blackjack table. But you know what's gonna make a big difference in your life is consistently investing over time and putting as much money as you possibly can into your investments. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today, my guest is the college investor, otherwise known as Robert Farrington. Robert's on a mission to help people escape their student loan debt, to become better investors and to build wealth for the future. Hello, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's start by finding out about why you wanted to do your own taxes at the age of 13. Most 13-year-olds are blissfully unaware of taxes, but you leapt right in. (laughs) I did. You know, I grew up, I was always uh, watching my dad on the floor of his office. Like I'd be just like playing games or whatnot. And he would be at the computer and he was, you know, pretty financially savvy. I I have to admit, I didn't come from any hard background. He was very much about balancing his checkbook religiously every single week. And, you know, he was doing his taxes. I remember he had Quicken on this giant computer, like, you know, Quicken 1992, and he would enter all of his transactions. And so I always just grew up very much following along and watching what he was doing. And, you know, he put a little bit of money away and my grandparents put a little bit of money away, like $1,000 in a mutual fund when I was born. And by the time I was 13, you know, it it was spitting off a little bit of dividends. So I had to file taxes. And I was very curious about this whole process. And my dad would walk me through it. And I found the whole thing really exciting that, you know, there's these investments out there. And for doing nothing, it paid you money that you had to file taxes for, which is just mind-blowing when you're 13. And so the whole thing was just extremely exciting for me, even though taxes, eh, don't like paying them, but I find the process to be very interesting. And I believe also the idea for taxes for you is that um, if you're paying tax, you're making money and that's a good thing. Exactly. I mean, I kind of view your taxes every year that we file as like your report card on your finances. Like, you know, did you do well? Did you not do well? How did it all add up at the end of the year? And so, uh, you know, like it or not liking the paying aspect of it, I think it really does give you a good check on your financial health, how your investments are doing, things of that nature. Where did you go to college and what did you study? Yeah, so I went to the University of California in San Diego, and I originally wanted to be a computer science major. I thought, you know, coding and developing apps and everything was going to be like what I was going to do. The cool thing to do, hey? (laughs) Right, it was. It was the cool thing to do. And I love computers. I'm a nerd kind of guy with technology and stuff. But I learned very quickly that I hated coding. You know, when you're a freshman, they send you to the basement computer labs on these really old computers and you have to code up these, you know, whatever you're doing. And I was miserable. I hated it. I just hated it. And so after my freshman year, I changed my major to political science and economics. And I I finished up and did that and graduated with uh, that. And then I went back and got my MBA as well. So at college, what did you observe about the relationship of students and money? 
Yeah. So, you know, given like I'd always loved money, I'd liked making it. I found this idea of investing really exciting. You know, I tried to join my college investment club and not to say that I couldn't join, but, you know, I was curious about it. It was like the college club fair day. You know, all the clubs like put out little booths on the main quad. So I, I went up and I was like, hey, I'm very interested in investing. I'm very curious. And all this club wanted to talk about was basically penny stocks. And gambling effectively on penny stocks. Oh, I bought this, you know, whatever ticker symbol and it was five cents and then it went up to 10 cents and I doubled my money. And, you know, there's, there was fun stories like that, but, you know, none of it was really investing. It was all just picking flyers and no research, no diligence, no understanding really of even what you were doing. And so I was kind of jaded uh, by the experience. And so I didn't end up really doing anything with the, the college investment club there. But I continued to read. And, uh, you know, this was the day and age where you had your laptop in class. And so I would, you know, always be reading financial blogs and Yahoo Finance and, you know, doing my own research. And so I just continued to grow that through school. And that's what ended up actually propelling me to start the college investor is it was kind of like this convergence of seeing other people blogging about money and also my own personal interest in technology. Because even though I wasn't a computer science major, I still really enjoyed the idea of building a website and the technology and that aspect of it. And so it all kind of came together. And, and that's really why I started what I'm doing today. And presumably, as well, a lot of students just were not interested in money at all. If you haven't got a family that's interested in, in investing and money and business and finance, it doesn't get taught in schools and you're kind of left by yourself and you just basically spend a lot of your money. Exactly. I mean, you're so right. We don't really have, you know, financial literacy education here in the United States. And, you know, the vast majority of people learn money through observation, right? So mm. you grow up observing your parents and seeing what they do. No, most people don't really ever have a sit down with their parents. They just observe, like, what do you see? What are you understanding? You know, people observe things like their employer. I actually, uh, read an interesting statistic from Fidelity, uh, the investment firm, where they said the majority of working Americans actually get financial advice from their bosses because there's this implied sense that the company that pays you somehow has financial knowledge or literacy, which is kind of shocking, right? Because your boss probably isn't any better with money than you are, but there's this implied sense that they are somehow better because they cut you a paycheck every week. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? And um, <clears throat> I think what happens now, of course, is that people start hearing, it's like your um, friends or the, the college investors at, um, at college with the penny stocks, is that they get interested because they think if it's a, a casino or they hear from someone about some a stock that they've invested in and they've made a lot of money, or of course in the media these days, there are a lot of people making money from the stock market. It's like a gateway drug really, isn't it, into investing and well, I know my experience with um, with this podcast is that people have to be shown what the um, what the reality of investing is. Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's definitely some cool stories out there. I mean, I'm sure by now people have seen the whole GameStop thing happening, right? And this one guy took $50,000 and turned it into like 40 million bucks investing in GameStop in one stock, right? But like the fundamentals of that one were outrageous. Number two, it's not going to happen for anybody else. And it's just like Vegas. Like, it's just like the lottery. Like someone wins the lottery every week, but that doesn't mean that you're going to win the lottery every week. So, you know, you've got to understand what you're getting into, what you're investing in. And, you know, 
I'm actually okay with people kind of learning these lessons, especially in college, because I'd rather someone gamble 500 bucks on a penny stock and lose it all when they're 20 instead of gambling, you know, 50,000 or $100,000 when they're 50. And that really puts them off track for retirement. So I'd rather people learn these bad lessons early because I have honestly, the worst thing that you can do is have some early wins and then string those together and think you're going to continue to have that kind of success through the rest of your life. Yeah. Although some people, they do lose that money and it turns them off investing for a long time. They think, oh, you know, it's a dangerous place, the stock market. And psychologically, they're suddenly switched off from it. Yeah. You know, you're right in some ways, but I hope it turns them not off from investing, but from picking stocks, right? Because that's where we have to teach people and educate them because investing in the stock market isn't necessarily just picking individual stocks, right? You have things like the S&P 500 or VTSAX and broad-based mutual funds, right? And instead of picking individual stocks, why don't I pick all the stocks? Every single one. And then, (laughs) you know, the only way you lose on that bet is if the world economy collapses. And, you know, if that happens truly, uh, we have bigger issues to fry (laughs) to deal with. (laughs) That's right. The zombie apocalypse comes and, you know, even the gold's not going to work anymore, is it? (laughs) Exactly. I I saw a funny quote too, like, you know, okay, so you have these gold bars. Like, tell me again how that's going to turn into bread for your family. Like, (laughs) it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Let's proceed presuming there's not going to be a zombie apocalypse. And um, if I can just dig a bit deeper into what you've learned about the stock market, you yourself personally, are you interested in individual stocks and do you research them or are you prefer to go into more broad-based ETFs and mutual funds? Well, both. So I'll tell you that I've done my homework. I've gotten the knowledge. Um, I do enjoy the aspect of researching individual companies. However, I keep that to a very, very tiny bit of my portfolio. Um, in general, you know, 90 plus percent of my portfolio is simple, broad-based index funds. However, I spent a lot of time trying to flesh out the best asset allocation for me and based on all my buckets of income, not just equities and bonds, right? But real estate, business income, my own personal earnings. And so what does my actual asset allocation of equities look like based on that? So I spent a lot of time on that. And I do a little bit of stock picking, but not very much. Nothing to change my life per se. How did you come around to that? I mean, actually doing this podcast, this is where my financial journey has turned around is that I used to try and be a stock picker. I thought that was the way you invested. But now I'm basically all broad-based ETFs across a range of assets as well with just tiny, tiny positions in individual stocks at the ends. Yeah. I mean, I came to this in a couple of ways. Well, first off, I had a couple amazing early wins, right? So when I tell you that that's the worst thing that can happen, it's my story. So I remember I picked some stocks, you know, when I was 21, 22 years old, you know, 200% return on these things and amazing stories to tell. But I was never able to repeat it. And I ended up losing all that money and getting back to basically square one. And it just didn't seem like this was appropriate. But part two is I had this realization that no matter how much I individually pick stocks, there's simply not enough money to make any kind of life-changing difference, right? Like I had a thousand bucks to my name. Let's just say this stock goes up 10,000%. Well, now it's, you know, up to, I have, you know, $100,000. That's cool. 
but that's not going to happen. That's not even the right math to that. I think that's $10,000, right? So like, it's not going to change your life. The number one thing that's going to change your life before you're 30, even before you're 40, is simply how much you can put into your investments. It has nothing to do with the return. And I think there's been some studies done on this as well. Your return cannot make a difference really on the outcome of your life. Like, you can have some amazing stories, but you know, we can also have some amazing stories of going to Vegas and hitting it big on a blackjack table. Mm. So, like, you know, <laughs> they're, they're very cool stories, but uh, you know, it's not for everyone and it's not going to, you know, make a big difference in everyone's life. Exactly. But you know, what's going to make a big difference in your life is consistently investing over time and putting as much money as you possibly can into your investments. And then if you can just get the market rate of return 10% a year, you know, you are going to be solid by the time you're getting close to retirement. And if you start this whole process when you're 20 years old, 22 years old, you're going to be solid by the time you're 35. And so that's really the name of the game. It's not about what you invest in. It's not about picking stocks. It is about how much you can possibly get into your investment accounts as early as you physically can. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. So, Robert, would you describe yourself as a financial blogger first and foremost? What's your go-to description of yourself? I love that. I'm a financial blogger and people can take that as they may. I mean, I do tailor myself to different audiences. Um, The College Investor at this point in time has really evolved into a a large financial media company. We touch a lot of people every single month and we work with pretty much every major brand that you can think of in the financial space. But at my heart, I'm a financial blogger. I like talking about financial literacy. I like helping people navigate this stuff and writing about things that can actually help you make a difference in your finances. Okay, so let's talk about that. And when people come to you, what are some of the common misconceptions people have um, when they're seeking your help and advice? Well, you know, the number one thing that I actually start with, with 95% of people is just getting organized. Now, this might sound counterintuitive to you and I, but most people don't even know where to start. We need to like, look at your, look at your income, look at your expenses, and then find a tool to kind of track where your money's going. Again, we don't teach this stuff in school. So like, I can't tell someone how to get out of debt faster if we don't have a clear picture on what their expenses or their income is. I can't say like, hey, you can invest more, max out your individual retirement account if you do this, but we don't even know what that is. And so step one is honestly laying everything out and then finding the tools that work for you because everyone's different. I'm a big believer that personal finance is personal. Some people, they want that pen and paper and they want to write it out. Some people are Excel spreadsheet junkies and they want to put everything in Excel. I'm an app kind of person, so I like having a personal finance app that tracks all your stuff, but you've got to figure out the solution that works for you so that then you can make informed decisions about how you're going to get a debt and start investing. But until you understand your picture of your finances, you can't even make an informed decision about the next step. 
Interestingly, I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone made the point that um, the mindset, you've got to get yourself out of the labouring class into the capitalist class. You know, the, the capitalist mindset is that you're going to make money from a passive income, whereas labouring, you make money from just continuing to sell your labour. Yep. I mean, you're, you're right there. I kind of look at it as the buckets of money. Um, it's not the true buckets of money from that book. But, you know, when you're young, typically, you yourself are the generator of your wealth. And the ideal goal is that you have a little bit of arbitrage in what you earn and what you spend, and you take that and you put it into other wealth-generating buckets. And those buckets are a business, potentially. They are a equities, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and real estate. And, you know, it doesn't have to be all those buckets at once, but, you know, you need to start taking some of that money that you are generating and putting into those buckets. And ideally, they start generating income so that you can either produce less or none in the you bucket and the other buckets are producing enough income for you to live off of or achieve whatever financial goal it is that you're looking for. Do you find people are responsive or some people just find this is all too hard and just don't make the changes that are, that are necessary in their life? What, what kind of percentage would you find, would you think it would be happening there? You know, it's hard. I think most people are in the it's too hard bucket. Like, frankly, I'd say 80% of people are. And that's why we kind of have the financial situation we have in this country. But on the flip side, uh, I think everyone does get to a light bulb moment in their life. And ideally, it comes sooner rather than later. But, you know, let's be honest, a lot of people aren't getting these light bulbs in their 20s. They're getting them in their 30s or 40s. Mm. Um, And we all have seasons of life. So I'm a big believer that, you know, everyone has a season of life. And, you know, maybe this is the season where you're going to start taking some action and try to do something different um, to improve that financial situation for yourself. Tell us some stories, some real life stories of people that you've helped and the changes that um, have taken a place in their life. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard because getting out of debt and investing isn't like an overnight thing. And so the stories are rare, but I'm excited when I hear them. So I I recently had a guy reach out that I helped maybe seven or eight years ago at this point in time. And he was just like, I just got an email like, I did it. I'm done with my student loan debt and I'm investing. And it's taken him that long. And that's the hard part is that creating the plan is only step one. Then you have to execute the plan and work the plan every single year for a long time, consistently, but it does happen. And so like this guy, you know, he started, he was in his late twenties, but seven years later, now he's in his mid thirties, he's debt free. He has money in his 401k and he's investing and he's going to be financially set for life here in the next 10 to 20 years. But you know, if you don't start that journey until you're 40, it is much more challenging. And so Really, I like to touch these people as early as we can. Hopefully, some sparks light off in their eyes and they start making good steps. I think another big part of it too is, you know, you have to do stuff that's uncomfortable. I'm a big believer of earn more money. You know, budgeting is cool and, you know, it's important, but you can't cut your expenses to zero. There's no way. You got to live. You got to eat. You got to get to work. You know, you can't not ever have fun. Like, you can't go to zero (laughs) on your expenses. Mm. But the amount of money you can earn is potentially limitless. But there is a psychological cost to that. You know, what are your friends and family going to think if if you decide to go and deliver for DoorDash or Postmates? Right? Like, people will judge you. And so I think a lot of people have a hard time overcoming the psychological 
aspect of everything. Um, but I'll also tell you that people are judging you when you're 35 and 40 and financially independent. And they're not going to realize all the crappy work you put in when you were 20-something to get there. So if you can overcome the, the judgment of your friends and family, uh, you can really do wonders with your personal financial life. It's interesting though, isn't it, that um, you've got to have a particular mindset. A lot of this comes down to the way you perceive yourself and the way that you have to focus your energies and attention to achieve these kind of goals, isn't it? Exactly. It's, it's all mindset. I mean, the math of money is extremely straightforward. And I know we don't teach it in school, but you know, by first grade, second grade, if you've learned to add and subtract, you've mastered everything it takes to handle your personal financial life. Hopefully multiplication as well. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, but you know, like really it's like budgeting. It's income minus expenses. You take that arbitrage, you put it in an account, let the account do its thing. But you know, it's the psychology of it. It's how do you, you know, find that arbitrage? How do you find that little bit of extra? Are you going to earn more? Are you going to spend less? Or are you going to fall victim to keeping up with the Joneses mentality? Are you going to go buy those new pair of shoes because all your friends think you need these new Air Force Ones or, or whatever it is, right? Mm. Like you're the one that has to have the mental fortitude to be okay with being judged and okay with creating a plan that's going to set you up for your future self. Student loan debt can seem insurmountable, can't it? I mean, it's such a, a big amount to start life with. Oh, it's it's horrible. It's, you know, one of those things that getting student loans is so scarily easy that a 17-year-old and 18-year-old honestly has no idea what they're getting into. I mean, if you have ever agreed to terms and conditions when you download an app on the internet, like that's all it takes is like you get an email from the financial aid office, click accept, scroll to the bottom, hit accept again, and boom, you have $20,000 in student loans. Mm, mm. It is so scarily easy but on the same time, no one's telling you what that actually means. No one's telling you what it's going to take to repay it. No one's telling you your options. And, you know, there's a lot of options out there, which it almost becomes analysis paralysis because, you know, uh, I've matrixed it out. There's 154 different alternatives and ways to pay off your loans, depending on what kind of loan you have and your career and a variety of things. 154 options. That's amazing. I didn't know that. <laughs> Yes. So are you really in the best one for yourself? I mean, hopefully, but also no one taught you. So mm. like you're guessing here and it's scary and it is a lot of debt, but you know, it, it can be manageable as well if you're willing to make some hard choices. And again, it's not for everyone. Everyone has a season of life. Maybe your season to tackle that isn't today. Maybe it's in six months or a year. Maybe you have a newborn. Maybe, you know, someone you know is extremely sick. I don't know. But I know that that's not going to be the same story in a year from now, because if you look back a year, it wasn't the same story then. And so as you go through, reassess your plan and change it, iterate on it every step of the way. I'm really interested in your concept of the cost of waiting. What is the cost of waiting? Well, I mean, the biggest thing with money and investing is time, right? There's compound interest. I don't know who that quote's attributed to, but you know what? Compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world, right? The, the goal is to grow your money over time. And so the longer you wait to start investing, the harder it is to achieve your financial goal. And when I say harder, it's not physically harder. It just takes more money. If you start investing when you're in your 20s, you maybe only need $300 or so a month to hit a million dollars by the time you're 60. 
But if you wait until your 30s, you're up to like $1,000 or so a month. And if you wait even longer, it, it just keeps exponentially growing. And so the cost of waiting is that you might never get there. Part two is the number one thing working against all of us humans is time as well. We only have a limited amount of time here in this world. And so, you know, the longer you wait, because maybe you're going to do this in the future, well, your own personal clock is ticking against you and your money is not working for you. These two paths are going towards each other and it might not work out for you in the end. Okay, let's look at it from the beginner's point of view. They've suddenly realized that they've got to do something. They've got to get their act together and um, they're going to start putting a bit of money away. Where is it that they should start putting their money? I mean, is there an app that you can invest in or where do you put that money to make it work for you the best? Absolutely. There's a lot of tools and services and stuff out there. But I like to start with even before the apps, start with the free money that your employer might give you. Most employers in the United States offer 401ks, right? And they will match your contribution. So if you put in 5% of your pay, your employer might put in 5% of your pay. That's free money. So not only are you investing, but you're also getting a bonus, basically, a 5% pay raise to invest. So start with the free options for yourself. Um, A health savings account is another tool. A lot of employers today are offering incentives and putting money into health savings accounts, which can be invested in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, just like a 401k. And it's free. And those ones, you don't even need to necessarily put your own money into. You can. But, you know, a lot of employers will do stuff like my old employer before I did the college investor full time. If I got an annual physical, they'd give me $500. And if I got my flu shot, they'd give me another $500. And they put that $1,000 into my health savings account. It was the greatest thing because that was 100% free money for doing something that I should be doing for my health anyways. So it really is a great way to get started. Okay. And then where should that money go? Index funds for the long term. Just keep it simple. Mm. Just pick an S&P 500, total stock market return, whatever that is in your own account. Keep it simple because when you only have $500 in the account to start with, it doesn't matter what it's invested in. Just get it invested and add more to it every single paycheck every single month. Because this podcast is aimed at beginners, can you explain what an index fund is and how one would access one? Yeah. So the index funds, it's a basket of stocks. So a common one that you might hear on the nightly news all the time is the S&P 500. So what is the S&P 500? Well, it's a list of basically the 500 biggest companies in America. And so what you get when you buy the index of the S&P 500 is you get a tiny, tiny little bit of all 500 stocks and you own them all. And why this is a good thing versus trying to pick one stock is when you buy the index, you're betting on all of them. And let's just say one of them fails. One of them's an Enron and goes under. Well, all that happens is stock number 501 gets bumped up into the index. So your index of holdings is still 500 of the biggest companies in America. And yeah, you'll have a little dip because one of the stocks failed, but you'll gain it right back because another one will come right into the index. And so again, why this is a better option is the only way you really lose is if the economy like totally collapses. Now there might be ups and downs over time, right? We have a recession or an economic slowdown, but when we're talking like 20 years down the road, the only way you lose is if there's no 500 biggest stocks any longer. 
And people need to understand that when we go through those market ructions, that um, you don't sell when they go, it goes down. A lot of people panic when they see the, the value of their investing dropping, you know, 20, 30%. I think last year was 38%. And they panic and they sell at absolutely the wrong time. You've got to hold through those periods, don't you? Yeah, just don't even look at it. Like if we're really focused on beginners here and we're really focused on your 401k, like just keep adding. Just think of it as a savings account. You're putting money in and it's growing. Don't even look at it until you're two years away from actually retiring. You can look at it again. I give you permission. But like until then, like just just put the money into the account and don't even think about it. Because yeah, a lot of people make silly choices. But what's happened every single time? 2007, 2008, the stock market drops like 70%. Now today, you know, 15 years later, 12 years later, the stock market is like five times higher than it ever was back mm, then. Mm. Like you would have missed all of that, right? And then even if you go on these little dips, like a couple of years ago, maybe it was last year, the stock market fell off and went down 30%, came roaring back. Mm-hmm. And seven months later, it's back and recovered all of that. So yeah, don't sell, just keep, just keep investing. Because again, the number one thing that's going to make a difference for you isn't what you invest in. It's literally how much you can put into the investments. So I can tell by the quality of your microphone and your rig there that um, you're a fellow podcaster. Tell us about your podcast as well. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, we have the College Investor Audio Show. And as of recording this, we are about to hit our millionth download. So I'm very excited about that. It honestly is an almost daily show where we take the best of our blog content and convert it into audio format. Most shows are six to 10 minutes long, quick and digestible bits of personal financial knowledge. And tell us more about the College Investor and how people can get in touch with you and learn from what you've got to offer. Yeah. So the college investor, we talk a lot about investing, getting out of debt. uh, And we also pretty much review any product and service in the financial space. So my goal is to help you make better informed financial decisions, get a student loan debt early, start investing and building wealth. You can find us at thecollegeinvestor.com. You can listen to our podcast or you can check out our YouTube channel at The College Investor as well. Robert Farrington, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Music flows when the money don't. 